You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. Luke chapter 15. Now, just to kind of recap so that everyone is on the same page, today we're going to finish up what we started two weeks ago. Uh, but in Luke chapter 15, Jesus, and I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 14, the chapter before, I'm not going to reco- uh, recover all of that. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. And keep in mind, the Pharisees are the self-righteous. They are the ones that they look at them, they look at their own lives and they say, all of you are sinners, but me, I'm pretty good. You need God to forgive you for a lot. I only need God to forgive me for a little. So they're very self-righteous. They look down on everyone else. And I'm so glad that when grace comes into the picture, Peter says it too. I don't want to mess up how Peter says it. But the apostle Peter said it like this. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. The lower you are, the faster God's grace will find you. And that's why in this position I'm in, it's easier for me to be around other people because I realize, hey, I need Jesus more than you. And he said, well, you're the pastor. How does that work? Hey, I need Jesus more than you. God gives favor, unearned favor to the humble. So all you have to do is stay humble. All you have to do is look at people as precious, as priceless, as valuable in God's eyes and in your own. And it's easy. Thank you for that thunderous amen. So when I see all of you this morning, I see gold. I see wood overlaid with gold. In fact, I don't see the wood. I see gold. God sees the wood, but he, want, he, he covers you with gold so that I can't see the wood. All I see is gold. When I see you, I see the favor of God shining on you. I see the glory of God reflecting off of you. And that's the beauty of what we do every Sunday is to remind you, you are gold. There is no spot. There is no wrinkle on you. Beloved. So anyways, Jesus is in the house of the Pharisee. And in the house of the Pharisee, they're all judging him. The Bible says they watched him to see what he would do. So imagine going to someone's house. You've never been there before. And the moment you sit down, everyone in the house is looking at you. They're staring at you. You pick up your fork. They're watching to see if you pick it up with the right hand. When you take a bite, they're watching to see, are you holding the fork the right way? They're watching Jesus very, very closely because they're trying to find a problem with him. So when you watch the story, Jesus is very, very uncomfortable. And all of a sudden in the house, he comes up with three parables. He says, first of all, no one should sit at the best seat in the house because when they do, someone better than them can come in and they ask you to take a lower seat. Then you'll be embarrassed. He turns around to the owner and says, don't invite people that can pay you back. Invite people that can never pay you back and God will pay you back. On his way out the door, someone says the wedding feast in heaven will be beautiful. He turns around and tells him a parable. I won't say the whole thing. You can get this, the sermon for yourself. He turns around and essentially says this. It will be awesome for everyone else except for your kind. Then he walks out. He says it in a little bit nicer way, but that's the point. It'll be good for everyone except for people like you. Because God doesn't want self-righteous people in his presence. He wants the weak, the maimed, the lame, the deaf, the blind, the mute. He wants people who need him. And everyone in here said, that's all of us. There you go. So he says, it'll be great for them. He walks out and he ends up by the sea. And anytime you read the Bible, you see Jesus or anyone is by the sea. You're looking at a picture of the nations of the world, the nations of the world. All right. And when he comes by the sea, he turns around and sees all these people following him out the house. Some sinners, but some Pharisees. And he says this by the sea, a picture of to the nations of the world. He says this, Hey, look, a man, uh, when a king wants to, 
I'm sorry, when a king wants to go to battle, he looks at how many people he has and he adds up and he realizes, hey, look, I either have enough or I don't. And if I don't have enough, I send someone to make peace with my enemy, lest I go into battle and lose. Or if a man wants to build a house, he looks at all the resources he has and he adds it all up and realizes either I have enough or I don't have enough. But I don't want to start it if I don't have enough, lest I start a house and realize I can't finish it and everyone else makes fun of me. Then he turns around and says one more parable. Salt is only good to be when salt loses its flavor. It's only good to be thrown out. And he says this. If you want to follow me, carry your own cross. Count the cost of what it means. Rough, tough, heavy. And the whole point of it is this. If you want to really follow me, you have to have grace. You cannot fail like they did in the house. You cannot fail like they did in the house. You want to be one of my followers? Then have grace. Because the moment you have no more grace, I can't use you anymore. Then he keeps walking. Then we come to Luke chapter 15, which is where we're going to start today. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says this. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. Now, we're not going to cover the whole. uh, We're not going to go into depth of the first two of the three parables. We're going to look at the first two briefly. I'm going to share something I didn't share last time. But we're going to focus on the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I know, I've known that story since the time I was a kid. I learned it in children's church. Um, I've heard it the majority of my life. I've heard many, many, many men of God share the story. But I'm going to share some things with you that are still new to me. And I want you to see the story as if you're seeing it for the first time. Is that all right? Is that okay? Yes. All right, cool. But before we come to the prodigal son, I want you to see verse 1. It says, then all the tax collectors, well-known sinners, popular sinners, all right? And, and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. Now, I want you to see, whenever sinners come close to Jesus, all of a sudden you see Jesus' heart. When self-righteous people come to him, he puts up a wall. But when sinners come to Jesus, you get his heart. So then, verse 2, it says, the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, again, eating with them is not the same as going out to, uh, you know, Sunday dinner or Sunday lunch. It's not like, hey, pastor, I want to take you out to eat. It's not the same thing. In that culture back then and still today, if I go out to eat with you in public or if other people know that you ate with me, it means that I receive you and I sign off on everything that you are. In other words, if you're a well-known sinner and I bring you into my house to eat, the whole village is going to be angry. How can Matthew bring a well-known sinner into his house to eat? He's saying that, hey, me and this person are together. We're in a bond together. Does that make sense? And it's just eating food. But eating food means everything. If you remember when Jesus came to, I think it was Jericho, he was on his way through and Zacchaeus was a tax collector, another well-known sinner, right? And when Jesus had his encounter with him, his last words to Zacchaeus were this, I want to go and do what at your house? Eat at your house. And everyone in the city was angry. There are better people than him. There are people who have done more. They've, uh, they've lived better lives. There are people who are just, they're just better people. They don't sin as much as this well-known sinner. And yet Jesus wants to eat at his house of all the homes. Why him? Again, God gives grace to the humble. It doesn't matter how bad you've been, how many mistakes you've made. Grace will find the whoever's the lowest in the room and grace will make them shine. So like the apostle Paul in his old age, I say this, I need Jesus more than all of you. And everyone said, you don't have to say it like that. All right. Yes, I need him. That's my declaration, not yours. All right. So anyways, you come to verse three. It says, so Jesus spoke this parable to them saying this. Now, again, we're going to breeze through this, but I want to point something out. Jesus says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep which was lost. I'm sorry, I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just or righteous people who need no repentance. Now like we shared last week, Jesus is not saying, hey look, I am the shepherd who lost one. So I went and found it. Jesus can never lose you. Jesus can never lose you. In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament, God has engraved your name into his hand. You are engraved in his hand. He cannot lose you. And if you understand the context, what we shared two weeks ago, he's actually quoting from Ezekiel and from Psalm. And what he's saying is this. There are some shepherds who were watching you, who I put over you, but they lost you. They lost you. And so he says, hey, look, I'm going to be the one that will come and find you. Fulfilling what is was told in Ezekiel. And when he said this parable, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Because in Ezekiel, God says, you lost my sheep, so I'm coming to find them. Are you with me? And then he says this, I'll hold them accountable for what they didn't do. May I never be one of those. Thank you. <laughs> so he says, hey, I, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, doesn't he leave 99 to go find them? Now look at the, the, the look at how, how aggressive he is. I will leave 99 to go find just one. I'll leave everything else just to find you. And then he says this, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Now I want to point out verse six one more time. For years, I saw it like this. Let's say, for example, I'm the shepherd, right? I find my sheep. I bring my sheep. I ask everyone to come with me and the sheep is in the middle. And I say, everyone, let's sing and dance. I found my sheep. Now for years, I thought that was the picture, right? But if you understand, look, look what Jesus said right here. You don't have to understand Hebrew to understand what Jesus said. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with who? Me. Me. Who, who, who is the emphasis on here? Think about it. Is it on the sheep or is it on him? It's on him. Rejoice with who? Me. For I have found my sheep, which was lost. I found the sheep. The sheep didn't find me. I found the sheep. So again, rejoice with me. Look what I did. Rejoice with me because of what I did. Church is not about how bad you are. Church is about how good he is. Let's rejoice because of how good he is. Let's thank God that he found us. We didn't find him. Church, when church becomes about us, we've missed the point. Church was never supposed to be about how all the things you could do wrong, you shouldn't do. And how to tell people what they should stay away from. And all the things that they shouldn't be doing. Church was never intended by God to be that. Jesus is setting a precedence right here. Rejoice with me because of what I did for you. Thank you for that thunderous amen. It's not about you. It's about me, the shepherd. Not me. It's about him, the shepherd. (laughs) Rejoice with me because of what I did. Then he comes to verse 7. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now I want to ask you, just on this parable alone, what did the sheep do to repent? He didn't do anything. He literally stayed in one spot. Last Sunday I shared more in more detail. But do you know that the sheep, when a sheep gets lost, it's a well-known fact. When a sheep realizes that it is lost... It will stop. It'll look around and realize there's no one else around me. And what it'll do is find a rock somewhere. And in Israel, there's rocks everywhere. On every hill, there's massive rocks and every hill. So a sheep will find a rock, a near rock or, or a shelter of some sort, and it'll stay there and just cry. 
That's what it does. It just stands in one spot in Christ. Now, what happened to this idea of you need to come back to church, but you need to come back into the house. You need to come back to God. Come back. Let me say this. Church is not God. Sinner church. Thank you for that thunderous amen. Church is not God. All right. Church. God is not confined to these four walls. As we've known from Jackson Park to the hotel now to the school. God is not confined to a geographical location. Thank you for that thunderous amen. It's not. And whether they come here or not, let me say this. God is with you. He's with you. He's looking for you. He's trying to go find you. He wants to go find them. So when you walk out of here, you're carrying him with you. You are the house of God. All right. So again, Jesus is saying, hey, look, in heaven, the sheep, look, look, the sheep is a picture of a sinner. The sinner who repented, he did nothing. And yet repentance is what he does to the sheep. Are you with me? Now that goes against the idea of what repentance is, but don't take my word for it. Watch this. Oh, I'll show you that in just a second. Second Timothy chapter two. Look at this in second Timothy chapter two. This is a little echo reverb. Sorry. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 24. It says, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Let me say this, sinner church. A servant of the Lord. All right. <laughs> a servant of the Lord must not quarrel or must not fight. And everyone said, Amen. stop fighting people, <laughs> but be gentle to all. Able to teach. If you're fighting people constantly, it's hard to teach. (laughs) Able to teach. Patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God will perhaps. Now watch this. If God will perhaps grant. Now the word grant is the word doe. Comes from the word didomai, which means to offer or to give. One more time. If God will perhaps grant. If God will perhaps give them. Give them something. If God will perhaps give them. What? Repentance. Repentance is not what you do. Repentance is what he gives. Are you with me? Repentance for the sheep is not trying to find the rest of the flock. Repentance for the sheep is stay in one spot. He will find you. Are you with me? He will find you. Now we use this term to get people saved, but let me say this. I am already saved. (laughs) And he still has to find me. (laughs) Every once in a while, he still has to come find me. And you know what? When he does, let me say this. God is the one who gives repentance. That's why when Jesus said there are more in heaven rejoicing over the one who repents, what he's saying is there's more joy in heaven over the one who says, oh, I'm lost again. Come find me. Oh, I don't know how I got here again. Save me. Every time you, oh, Jesus, I need you again. He says, thank you. And everyone in heaven rejoices over you. Everyone in heaven rejoices over you. Now I had a, a conversation with a, uh, with, with a minister last week and he brought up something he said what about you know the shepherds who used to break the sheep right now we've heard that before what about the shepherds who do that right but let me ask you let me let me ask you watch what jesus says he says when he comes uh he says um where are we at that's the one before back up nope this is it he says when he finds it he does what he lays it on his rejoicing Mm. he purposely doesn't put breaking the legs in there it was a well-known fact today and back then that when a sheep would get lost they would break the legs but Jesus purposely did not put that in there for people who were hearing Jesus in that day they would have said well he's about to say break the legs we know how the story ends but he doesn't he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he carries it home if he has to climb a, if he has to climb a cliff he'll put the sheep on his shoulders and he'll climb the cliff if he has to go down through a valley to get home the sheep will stay on his shoulders Jesus is saying I'm so happy that I found you I put you on my shoulders and I never put you down And I go home singing and dancing. 
Thank you. This is the fifth time you've had to save me, Lord, but he still sings and dances every single time like it's the first. Well, I I keep doing the same thing. I keep making the same mistake, but he sings and dances as if it's the first time every single time because that's how he feels about me. Are you with me? We weren't supposed to be on this parable that long. Let's go to the next one. I want to show you five things he does because this is going to show up later. Notice what he does in verse five. When he has found it, number one, he lays it, number two, on his shoulders and he does what? Number three. And um, skip down. And when he comes home, number four, he calls all his friends. Five things. One more time. Number one, he finds it. He lays it. He rejoices. He comes home and he calls. Five things he does. Why is that? Because every time you run to him for something, every time you say, Jesus, I need you again. He'll always come with grace. He'll never come with guilt. He'll never come with condemnation. He'll never come to tell you how you failed again. He'll always come to save. Then he says, what? Rejoice with me for I found. And then we talked about that. Now watch the next parable. In the next parable, right after that, Jesus says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. Now put these in gold. I want you to see this. Light a lamp, number one. Sweep the house, number two. And search carefully until she finds it. How many is that? Three. Verse nine. And when she has found it, number four, she does what? Calls her friends. Number five. Now I ask you, if you think the sheep analogy, well, Matthew, some sheep could find their way. Okay, let's give you that. A woman lost a coin. How can the coin find its way home? Even a sheep can look at the shepherd and say, thank you. Not in English. He'll, you know, in sheep language, thank you for finding me. What can a coin do? Nothing. Jesus is, okay, some of you are going to debate with me about the sheep. Fine. A woman has 10 coins. A coin gets lost. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches until she finds it. And when she has found it, number four, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me. Again, she doesn't put the coin on a a platform and say, everyone, let's sing and dance around the coin. What does she do? She calls all her friends and probably leaves the coin at home. She calls everybody else. Let's go dance. I found my coin. Right? It's not about the coin. Church, it's not about you. It's about seeing that he is happy about what he gets to do for you. Do you believe he's happy that he gets to save you again? I get to save you again. I mean, he doesn't look at it like I have to do it again. That's the picture I always had. He looks at it as another opportunity to have another party in heaven because he got to save you again. Don't rob him of the opportunity. Just stop what you're doing and say, save me again. And he will do it and he'll sing and dance the whole time. I always saw God with this human characteristic. Well, you know, gosh, I got to do it again. Matthew, five times is enough. Why are we on number six? <laughs> because you know what? That's how we interact with people. But Jesus is the exact opposite. No, God is excited. He gets to save you again. And everyone said. Amen. And that concludes our message for today. <laughs> now, let me show you this. In Luke chapter 15, let's, co- let's scroll down to verse 11. And I'm going to share the story of the prodigal son. I'll share what I can. If we run out of time, we run out of time, but I'll share what I can. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11, we see the story of the prodigal son. Now, in this parable, keep in mind, there are three characters, three main actors who are about to take center stage. We have the prodigal son, which is the younger brother. We have the older brother, and then we have the father. Now, between the two, if you look at all three, the younger brother, the prodigal son, we always call it the prodigal son. The story in your Bible might be titled the prodigal son. But let me say this. Both of the sons were lost. At the end of the parable, you realize the older son is just as lost as the younger one was. 
And I'm going to show you why they were both lost in just when we come to the end. But keep in mind, the younger brother, look, he's a little more vocal about what he wants to do. The older brother is a little more quiet about what he really wants to do. And the father is going to be the bridge between the two. Are you with me? Now, again, Jesus talks about repentance in the first parable. In the second parable, he's going to talk about repentance in the third, even though he doesn't use the word repent. But when you see the word, when you see how he used repentance in the first two, it's going to make sense in the third. Is everyone still with me? So let's read through this and I'll stop as we go so that we don't lose too much time. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 says, then Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now I want you to hold on for a moment. He comes to his father and says, give me the portions of goods that belongs to me. Translation, Father, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I know one day you will die. And when you die, I will get a portion of the inheritance. I don't feel like waiting any longer. I've waited long enough. Can I have my money now? (laughs) You can imagine how that would go over today. In America, right? <laughs> I want you to fast, just think for a moment in Middle Eastern culture. He literally said this to a bunch of people who knew exactly what he was saying. I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. A good father back then would have slapped his son across the face. I'm being honest. A good father would have slapped his son, would have called his servants, tie him up, put him in a room. Then they would have beat him together. Now, this is not me trying to be theatrical. I'm being honest. There are actually records of back then, that time period of what fathers did to their children who acted like this. So Jesus is telling the story. We all know how the story should end. He's going to be beat. He's going to be beat twice. He will never say that again. All right. And yet, what does Jesus say? He said, Father, give me the portions of good that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, I want you to see the heart of God because the father is a picture of God, but it's really a picture of Jesus as well. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. But again, he comes to him and says, I can't wait for you to die. So what does the father do? All right, I'll give it to you now. And I'll give it to your older brother who didn't ask. Let me say this. There are people in your life that are blessed because of you. There's some things that, listen, listen, it's not time for God to give it to you yet. But if you ask for it, he'll give it to you anyways. Because he loves you. Some things he knows. Like, I'll never give Parker the keys to the car. He might want the keys. He might ask. But I would be a fool to give him the keys to the car. Are you with me? Likewise, there are some things that God can't give you because he knows it will destroy you. He loves you too much. But at the same time, there are some things that if you ask, he will give it to you because he loves you. So anyways, Jesus changes the narrative. The father doesn't slap him and have him beaten. He just gives it to him. So then you come to verse 13. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions. Now I want you to keep in mind, verse 13 is interesting. It says, not many days after the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. Now how do you gather land together? The only way you can gather land together and go to a far country is if you sell it. And let me say this, just like today, just like back then, and just like in America as well, it takes a very long time to sell property. It does not happen in a few short days, especially in Jewish culture. Do you know that there's a law? God says you cannot sell your inheritance. Did you know that? God says if a a man receives an inheritance of land, you cannot sell it. And if you do sell it, you're breaking God's law. Now, he's talking to Jewish people who know what the law says. And at the same time, Jesus is saying he gathered it all together. Translation, he got land from his father. He got gold. He probably got some livestock. He took it all. He sold it all. Now, how did he sell it so quickly? The village was probably very disrespected by what he did. 
looking at what he did, was probably very disrespected. He's trying to sell the property that belongs to this man. And they probably said, let's hurry up and get him out of here. Let's give him the money for it so he'll leave. Are you with me? Now, at the same time, I want you to keep in mind, there's also um, a ceremony that takes place. In the book of Numbers, God says this. If a man has a son that is um, that just sins a lot. I don't want to use the word licentious. If a man has a son that's just evil, he's bad. He does all the things that we see this son do right here. The father is to take that son to the gate of the city. And then he's to bring the elders of the city. And there at the gate of the city, they're to stone the boy. Are you with me? But Jesus is telling this story, knowing what God's law says, knowing what the people are expecting him to say. He says quickly, he sold everything, he took it, and he left. Meaning, they didn't get to do the ceremony. Are you with me? He should be dead. But for whatever reason, they didn't get a chance to do it quickly. So he sold it, they took it from him, and when they were probably about to get him, he dips out. He runs. Sorry, the young me came out. He dipped out. I apologize. God uses personality. <laughs> so he runs. And then you come to verse 14. I'm sorry, um, verse 14. It says, but when he had spent all there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Now, isn't it like God to let a famine hit the land? <laughs> isn't it like God? You find yourself, Lord, how did I find myself here? Long before the Israelites ran out of water, he knew their water was running low. Long before they ran out of food, he knew their food was running low. Long before you arrived at this problem, he saw the problem you were coming to. And do you know what happened? He still let them run out of water. He still let them run out of food. He still lets you show up at the problem. You know why? Because he wants you to know he still, you still need him. <laughs> you still need him. So a famine hits the land and all of a sudden he becomes, he begins to be in want. Now I want you to watch this. Verse 15. It says, then the boy went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into the fields, into his fields to feed swine. I want you to get the picture. This boy has gone out. He's wasted his money living a sinful life. Now that he has no more money, he has an option. If I go back home, my father has servants. My father is wealthy. I can go back home. But if I go back home, the village wants to kill me. (laughs) So I have to deal with the village. On top of that, I have to deal with my father who may not be very happy when he sees me. So my alternative is stay where I'm at. So he stays where he's at and he joins himself to somebody who owns pigs. Jews do not own pigs. (laughs) They don't because they are unclean animals by God's own word. They are unclean. So he joins himself to a Gentile. Now, if this didn't make Jesus's audience angry, I'm sorry, if his father incident didn't make them angry, this made them angry. Not only did he disrespect his father, not only did he disrespect his village, now he's disrespecting his culture by feeding pigs. Are you with me? So anyways, if you want to know how Jesus identifies sin, he's identifying sin the way that they understand it. He wants his audience to know, listen, listen, listen. This boy was not some good, some bad. This boy was just all bad. All right? There wasn't some good in him. He just made mistakes. This son was evil from the inside out. He knew what he should not do, and yet he still did it anyways. Are you with me? It says, and he gladly would have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, now here's the turn of the story. Are you ready? But when he came to himself. Now, the more I studied this out, it seems like the turning point of the story is what he did. He came to himself, right? All of a sudden, he repented. He came to himself. And if you're not careful, all of a sudden, this message can become about us. The parable of the sheep, who is it really about? 
is about Jesus. The parable of the lost coin, who is it about? Jesus. The parable of the son that's lost, who is it really about? It's not about him, it's about Jesus. Watch this. When he came to himself, now everyone in the audience, oh yes, this is the turning point, he's going to repent. He says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I die with hunger. Now look, this powerful moment became about his stomach. Not about his father's love. Not about his father, his father's protection and all his, and all his father would do. His, his, this moment, this moment was not even about his father. It was about his servant's food. They don't die of hunger, but here I am dying with hunger. Maybe it's time for me to suck it up, swallow my pride, get through the village, find my father's house and tell him, Hey, can you, uh, can I, can I work like a servant? Now, again, if you study the word servant out right here, what you'll find is he's going to go to his father and literally say, make me a craftsman. Send me off and make me a craftsman. I know I wasted my money, but pay a little bit more. And if you'll make me a craftsman, I can be successful in this way. I can pay back everything I took from you. If you will just just bear with me for a little bit longer. He decides. Let's, let's follow the story. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That sounds really, really noble. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's on the right track. Make me like one of your highest servants. We detoured. (laughs) Because that phrase, make me like one of your highest servants, is literally send me somewhere to learn a trade. That's what it means. Send me somewhere to learn a trade. Because he doesn't see go back and apologize. What he sees is go back and say the right things to get the right result so that I won't still be a failure. Because if I go home now, they'll laugh at me and call me a failure. But if I go home and say, hey, make me a make me a tradesman, I can come back and pay back everything I lost. Are you with me? That that shining moment. And he came to himself is really him trying to one last last Hail Mary. This is it. I got nothing else after this. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, I put these in gold. I want you to see this. Let's count it off again. Just like the other two parables, let's count it off. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him, number one. His father had compassion, number two. He ran, number three. He fell or embraced him on his neck, number four. And did what, number five? The first response from his father, the first response is to do what? Reassure his son in his heart. You'll only find grace here. You'll only find grace. But let's back up. In verse 20, it says, He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off. When he was still a great way off. Now, I can tell you, based on um, culture, based on Jerusalem, the way it's set up now and the way it was set up back then, I had a picture of when we were in Israel, when you stand on top of Mount Arbel. I don't know if the next trip you'll be at Arbel, but when you're overlooking the Sea of Galilee, there's this big cliff called the uh, Mount Arbel or Cliff of Arbel. And just over, I mean, you're looking down. Pff, I don't even know how high it is. Mount Arbel is ridiculous. It's high, very high. And as you look over this countryside, you can see small little places of lots of houses. And you can see a road and then a few more houses. I was going to show you a picture. I took pictures there. Um, and I wanted to show you this morning. I forgot to add it. But keep in mind, the same way they do now, where groups of people live together like villages. Back then, groups of people live together in villages. Houses were so close. In fact, there are records uh, from the Babylonian Talmud from when they went into exile. There are actually records that say they lived so close that a camel could walk through the street and touch both houses at the same time. That's how close they lived to each other. 
Not between houses. I'm talking about houses facing each other in the street. So when Jesus walks through and the Bible says that as many as could touch him, they got healed. When Jesus walked down the street, you're looking at people who were literally, they could stand in their doorway, touch him and get healed. Are you with me? When the Bible says in Acts, Peter could walk down the road and they would lay people's a shadow, uh, his shadow would fall on them. What you're seeing is the houses were so close that when Peter walked down, literally they were so close to him that the power of God hit them. It wasn't that they were, uh, you know, like our roads today where they had to get a little closer. They could stand at the doorway and they could get healed. Imagine not even having to go find him. Just stand at your doorway. When he comes by, you get healed. Are you with me? So again, what you're looking at is nothing like what we understand today. You're looking at villages that were very, very close. And they were so close that just like today, if I tell someone this over here is going to make its way across the village very, very quickly. Are you with me? So again, he knows if he wants to come home, he's going to have to get through the village. Now, I can tell you definitively his father probably didn't live on the edge of the village. You know why? Because the Bible says that his father was a wealthy man and he saw him a far way off. See that verse right in verse 20? But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Meaning his father's house was probably higher than everyone else's and everyone else was probably probably around the house. Are you with me? So to get to his father's house, he has to run through the village. Are you still with me? But what does everyone in the village want to do? They want him dead. They want him dead. So it's a long shot. If I get home, I have to try and get through the village quickly and quietly. Because if they catch me, I'll die. But what do we see the father does? When he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and does what? He runs. Now let me say this. There's a common law that the Pharisees instituted that no man should ever run. They based it on the law that God said. In Exodus, God told the priests that they must wear linen, full 100% linen. You cannot wear cotton and linen, only linen. And the reason being is because cotton will make you sweat in the desert, but linen will keep you cool. Now, it's a picture of mixture. On one hand, don't mix your clothing because it's a picture of you living with mixture inside of you. Don't try to be under the law and under God's grace at the same time. It never works. Are you with me? At the same time, God says, I don't want you to wear cotton because you'll sweat. And in Genesis, the the curse is that you'll sweat. Now by the sweat of your brow, you will produce. That's the curse. So in the in the wilderness, God says, I want you to wear linen so you'll never sweat. Are you with me? I want you to be cool even in the even in the desert. Are you with me? But right here, they base the same logic off of that. If a man can't sweat, when you run, you sweat. So when you're an adult, you can't run. Children can run, but men don't run. Also, your clothes are very, very long. And in order for a man to run, he must pull up his clothes, his robe, and he must run while holding his garment. Now, that does one of two things. It exposes your legs, which is also a sin to the Jew. All right? I, I'm, I could be wrong. I think there's a verse in Song of Solomon. He talks about the legs. The legs can also be depicted as a way of sin. You can make someone stumble in their heart. So you don't show your legs. Or you can leave your undergarments, your underwear showing, but people see your underwear. So men don't run. We just walk really fast, but you don't run. But Jesus knowing, again, knowing what the law and the custom is, the people knowing what the law and the custom is, Jesus says he saw him and the father knows what the village wants to do. He does what? He runs. Now listen, as a man running, holding his garments up, (laughs) it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. In fact, I was reading a commentary and this one guy said it like this. The son knew he would have to run through a gauntlet of judgment to get back home. But the father instead decided, let me run through the gauntlet of judgment for you so that I can save you. Are you with me? The father says, I would rather be embarrassed 
to save you than let you come through here and maybe not make it. I'm not even going to give you the credit of you saying, I made it through the village. No, 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 no. I ran through the gauntlet of judgment for you. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) He runs to him and falls on his neck. Now look up here. The village probably sees the father running. Let me show you something else he's doing. By running to the son, he's distracting everyone else. He saw the son. Someone else might see the son. So by him running, he now takes all the attention off of the sinner, puts it on himself. That's why I say when you run to God, God is not focused on your sin. God is not focused on your sin. Church is not about you. Church is about him. Take your attention off your sin. Put your attention on him. And let his goodness override all your sin. I promise if you will just focus on his goodness, you'll find that it's hard to continue in the same sin. That's why we say all the time, say I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Because the more you focus on his righteousness, it's hard to keep sinning. It's hard to keep doing something like a sinner when you know you are the righteousness of God in Christ. So again, by running, he's distracting everyone. Don't look at my son, look at me. And when he gets to the son, then they can see the son. But now they have to see the son behind the father. Are you with me? Oh man, I love this story. And the son said to him, "Uh uh-oh, went too far. Where are we at? And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now he's about to say what? Make me a hired servant. Send me off to learn a trade. But before he can get those words out, the father doesn't even talk to him. (laughs) The father hears this first part, turns and says this. Where are we at? But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. Translation, I heard you. Don't need to hear anything else. He turns to the servant who was probably running behind the father. He runs, we run. (laughs) And he turns to the servant and says, go quick, bring out the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now, before we go on, before we go on, let me say this. The son in his heart missed it. By running to the son and doing those five things, he wants him to know in his heart, my first response to you will set the precedence for everything else. I will always be gracious to you. He opens his mouth and says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Forget you. He turns to the servant. (laughs) Quick, go get the robe. Go get the sandals. Go get the ring. Are you with me? Sandals, robe, ring. And I'm going to show you the other two in just a moment. Go get these things. Why? Because this is how the rest of the village will treat him from now on. Are you with me? Now, I'm coming to something in just a moment. I'm going to close in just a few minutes. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Watch this. Let us run the race because Jesus ran to us. Verse 2, looking unto who? Jesus. Oh, that was so weak. Looking unto who? Jesus. The author and finisher or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, let me say this. Jesus saw, in order for me to save you, I have to run through this. I have to take the cross. I have to carry it. I have to be beat. I have to be spit on. I have to have my hair pulled out. I have to have even my bones exposed. I have to go through all of this. Translation, I have to go through hell to get to you. And at the cross, he wasn't on there with a loincloth. He was completely naked, ashamed. If I want to save you, I have to do all of this. And yet for the joy that was set before him. I looked up like 15 translations. Every one of them said it like this. But I use this for on purpose. Almost every one of them said this. For the thought of having you, 
He said, what is the shame? For the thought of just having you, what is all of that? I would rather hang at the cross naked so that for the rest of your life, you'll never be ashamed. Oh, man. Are you with me? For the joy set before him. Not that one day I will sit at my father's right hand in glory. We all have that image in our head. No, 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 no. The joy set before him was you. Knowing he could have you. He said, what is the cross? What is it to have my skin, my flesh ripped from me? What is it? What is the cross? What is it to hang there naked and exposed if I get you? So for the joy set before him, he ran through the gauntlet of judgment for you. Then we come back to Luke 15. Now watch this. He says, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. One, two, three, verse 23, bring the fatted calf. When you look up this, this idea of a fatted calf, let me say this. You know, about 50 people could eat on one sheep. Literally, one sheep could feed about 50 people. And I'm not talking about we all get a bite. We all are very full. One sheep can feed 50 people. He said, bring the fatted calf. (laughs) What does that mean? You're talking about 200 plus. You're talking about everybody in the village is about to eat on us. Everybody in the village is better off now that he's come home. He disrespected us, but we are better off now that the father has received him back. Let me say this. Jesus made God wealthy. God was rich before the cross. But after the cross, Jesus added to God's wealth by bringing all of us in. Mm. Are you with me? And again, your co-workers are blessed because you are there. Now watch this. Watch this. He says, quick, bring the fatted calf here and let us eat and be merry. Bring the calf for be merry. Five. Make no mistake about it. Be merry. If one person comes in and they're angry with him, if one person comes in and mistreats my son, if one person comes in and tries to remind anyone in here about what my son has done done wrong, let me go ahead and say it right now. He better be merry. (laughs) By being the wealthiest one in the village, by probably having the most money in the village, what he's saying is this. I'm telling everyone, this is how this party will go. You're eating on me, you'll be happy. Understood? Good. All right. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to be married. Now, let me close with this. I'm coming to the end. By saying this, what he's saying is, hey, he was dead. He's alive. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. You can say, well, he was dead. Was he dead to the family until he came back? No. What he's saying is this. He was dead. Now, what made him dead? I want to come to the end. I'm coming to the end. Look at this. Look at this. He tells them to be married in verse 23, right? Look at this. Romans chapter 8. I'm coming to the end. I promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with Jesus also freely give us all things? If Jesus was free, healing is free. If God puts a price on healing, then healing is more expensive than his son. And nothing is greater than the son. If God gave Jesus freely, everything else is free. That's why grace is given freely. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect when it is God who justifies? God says, I want you to have a party everywhere you go. Have a party everywhere you go. And if someone steps up and says, how can you call yourself a Christian? Who can bring a charge against God's elect when it is God who justified? When it's God who forgave? When it's God who gave his own son for you? No one can challenge it. No one can challenge it. Now watch this. He goes in. He says he was dead. He was alive. Now watch the older brother. We're coming to the third act of the story. And I'm going to close with this. 
It says, now the older son was in the field. Notice, the younger son leaves the house. The older son is also not in the house. The first time we see the older brother, he's not in the house. Now watch this. The older son was in the field. Who works in the fields? The servants. He's acting like a what? Like a servant. When the son came home, the father could have let him finish and said, that's a great idea. I need more servants. But he didn't say that. You know why? I'll say this for us as a church. God does not need more servants. He needs more sons. Sons and daughters. Are you with me? And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. I don't know how you hear dancing unless there's a lot of people dancing on a second floor. Okay. Then the house is shaking. We hear dancing. So he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. (laughs) And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he, the father, has received him, he has received him. Make no mistake about it. He didn't judge him. He has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. I love it. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Now, let me say this. Again, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand the picture. And I'm going to close in just a moment. By choosing not to come in, this is something that everyone in the party would have noticed. We're all singing and dancing. Probably 200 of us were eating the fatted calf. There's some left over. All of a sudden, the one who the party is for, which is not the son, is really the father. All right. The father says, hold on a second. Steps outside. Now, today at a, uh, at, a, at a party or something, one person can leave. The music keeps going. In Middle Eastern culture, if the star or the person who the party is for walks out, everyone stops. All right? Which made me start realizing some of you are rude. <laughs> I'm joking. So anyways, the father steps outside. Everybody stops. He walks outside and he comes to the son. The Bible says he did what to him? Pleaded with him. Now, let me say this. This destroys the picture of God that so many of us had. Why would God ever plead with you for anything? Why would God plead with me for anything? And yet Jesus is showing you, listen, your idea of a father is nothing close to what God is for you. God is now coming to them and saying, please, please. He came out and he pleaded with him. So the older brother answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you, even though you never asked him to. I have been serving you, not being a son. I've been a servant to you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. He's self-righteous. He thinks he's never made a mistake. The Pharisees were mad at Jesus listening to the story are going, this is us. (laughs) He said, I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Look up here. What is he trying to say? Look, look, you never gave me a goat that I could have fun with my friends. His friends are clearly more important than his brother that just came home. Now, let me say, oh, I'm coming to the end. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Or with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Keep in mind, he was connected to a Gentile, which means they were probably Gentile. It was probably a Gentile village, which means not only did he work with the Gentile, not only did he feed pigs, not only did he disrespect the village, the family, and everything we stand for, he was out sleeping with Gentile prostitutes. The two come together, they become one. How can you give him a fatted calf knowing what he's done? (laughs) And the father said to him, nothing about the younger son. Nothing about the younger son. Let me ask you, is it true that the younger son did all that? He probably did. But God has nothing to say about your failures. God has nothing to say about it. 
He has nothing to say. When Abraham sinned by Ishmael and God came to him and said, you and Sarah are going to have a son. He said, I have a son. And God said, fine, you want to talk about Ishmael? He'll be great too, but he's not the one. I'm done. I don't want to talk about Ishmael. I don't want to talk about your failures. I don't want to talk about your sin. When the father, his first words to him are son, even though you act like a servant, son, you are, not were, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. At any point, you could have taken a goat for yourself at any point. But your self-righteousness made you think you had to exchange with me so you could never take from me. Do you understand? As long as you are self-righteous, you think you have to exchange something to get something. But he's saying, you're always with me and everything I had was always yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let me close with this. Watch this. How is the son, how was he lost? How was the older brother lost as well? Because neither one of them really believed that the father loved them the way he did. If they had known that he loved them the way that he did, the younger never would have left the house. Knowing what he could have done with all that money, he would have probably found something else to do with it. The older brother, knowing that his father loved him, never would have been mad because he would have known all of it was his. But like I say, every time we talk about this, I don't blame God. I don't even blame you. I don't blame sheep for acting like sheep. You know who I blame? Pastors for not being good messengers, for not telling people the truth that this parable was really not about the son, that the the lost sheep had nothing to do with him, that the lost coin had nothing to do with the coin. It had everything to do with the good shepherd, with the woman, with the father. Jesus is saying, stop looking at your sin and look at me. I am singing. I am dancing. And whether the younger brother comes to it or not has nothing to do with that, because I want everyone to know I am celebrating you. I am throwing a party for you. And everyone who says, how can you throw a party for him? Look at how big my party is for him. Look at how great my party is for him. I mean, that's what God wants to do for you at your job. He wants to celebrate you at work. Look how awesome you are. I can't, uh, Holly can attest to it. How many mistakes I make in a day. I've gotten better. I've gotten better. But the favor of God just washes over every mistake. And even when you get in trouble, you realize you're never in trouble like everyone else. When other people get in trouble, it's serious. When you get in trouble, it's like, you know. It's like they don't have other options. (laughs) And you're looking around at other people that are other options. But in their eyes, they have no other option because the favor of God rests on you. When God celebrates you, I'm telling you, everyone else is watching him celebrate you. He wants the world to see he celebrates you. And what do you have to do? He didn't even have to make it all the way home. He just had to turn and face the house. And his father saw him. In fact, the same word for he went to a faraway land is the same word for uh, the father saw him a far way off in the Aramaic, same word, meaning, meaning you can say it like this. While he was still in that village, when he turned the direction of his home, his father saw him that far. And his father didn't wait for him to walk home. His father met him. I love it. <laughs> Look at this. First Corinthians 13. Why do we talk so much about the love of God? Let me close with this. Watch this. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Are you ready? He's going to show us how to become mature. Are you ready? This is maturity in God's eyes. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. 
You want to see the transition? How do you go from being a baby in Christ to becoming a child, to becoming a teenager, to becoming a, a son and daughter of the Most High? How do you mature in God? And I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love. It opens up in verse 1. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast, right? And he goes on to talk about all these things may fail, but God's love for you will never fail. And then he goes on to talk more about love, love, love. And then he comes to this and says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. But how do you become mature in Christ? Know that God loves you. Know that God loves you. The problem with the son was he acted like a child because he didn't know his father loved him. But the moment you really believe that God loves you, you know what happens? You stop acting like a child. That's why in a church like this that we preach the grace of God. Listen, listen, I don't have to tell you what not to do. I just have to convince you that God loves you. Say this, say, Jesus, you love me. Say, you love me in spite of me, in spite of my failures, in spite of my sin, in spite of me. And no matter how many times I make a mistake, no matter how many times I go around this mountain, your love for me will never change. Your love for me will seize the opportunity to save me. Thank you for it. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you this morning again. We thank you, Father, for your truth. Lord, we thank you for your truth that sets us free. Father, I ask for a fresh revelation of your love to settle in the hearts of everyone that's here this morning. Everyone that's here this morning. A fresh revelation of your love to settle in their hearts this morning, Father. That even this week, whatever the battle is, whatever the problem is, that they would find rest knowing, knowing, because you love us, we don't even have to try to move. We can just stand still and you will find us, you will take care of the problem for us. So Jesus, I ask this morning for a fresh manifestation of your favor on everyone in here. A fresh manifestation of your love. A public display of affection for everyone in here this morning, Father. That when they find themselves at work tomorrow morning, may everyone around them know that they are loved by you. May everyone around them know that we are loved by you. And Father, I thank you for your favor that's protecting everyone in here. Where things might seem to take a downward turn, I thank you that your favor is lifting us up higher. Father, as David was elevated, I'm sorry, as Joseph was elevated to number two, I thank you, everyone in here, everyone in here is being elevated right where they're at. I thank you, Father, that your favor is causing them to skip the line, that you are moving everyone in here into positions that they are unqualified for. Father, that you are continuing to open doors for everyone in here to move them up, to move them further and farther than they ever thought they could ever go. Father, I thank you that your love wants to blow our minds. So this morning, we say, do it. Yes. Blow our minds and do it in such a way that we know it was only you and it could only be you. Yes. In Jesus' name. Can you lift your hands and stand to your feet? Stand to your feet, just lift your hands right where you're at. The Lord bless you in your going out and in your coming in. The Lord keep you and your family always at the right place at the right time. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you. May you enjoy his peace 
this week. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. 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 I love you. We went way over time. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.